Kia ora Tefano. welcome back to the Hour of the Wolf. We've had an awesome week full of action and movement and interactions and corridors and all sorts of things. So the context is, on Wednesday there was a climate summit for the whole region that involved experts from within the region, in the national context, and they all came here to talk about the impacts of climate change and the economy, environment and society of the coast. So we had everything from the expected projections for the temperature increase and, and other climatic factors to the effect of those factors in ecosystems such as the Rakumara forest and the Waiapu catchment up the coast. So we had over 20 experts joining the Korero and over 100 people in the audience listening and doing great questions and giving a lot of good feedback so it was it was not a, a kind of a master class it was a full-on conversation and i was lucky enough to be there and have a microphone available so we were able to record a few little snippets of interviews with a few presenters and so i'll just leave you to listen to those because their message is the one we should be listening to i'll give a little bit of context to each corridor and then i'll just you know leave you to listen to it through Sarah's presentation today and her work in Carbon Watch and NIWA, we have understood the future of Tetairafiti regarding climate change in a variety of ways, such as temperature increases, precipitation decreases, and erosion and oceanic temperature and acidity rises. So all of these factors present different challenges and her presentation and her work was the one that initially opened up the conversation to talk about how we're going to face these challenges. Sarah, what were your first impressions after starting to look into what the regional future um, regarding climate change looked like for the coast? Honestly, holy crap. But, you know, I... <laughs> You know, you, you sort of start from thinking about the mean temperature, right? And the mean temperature change is pretty mo modest. If you if we continue on our current path, at the end of the century, it's looking around three degrees. But then when you start thinking about the intensification, the mo more frequent high temperature days, days when it's hotter than 25 degrees C, and then you start looking at those numbers, you're looking at a very large number of really hot days across this region. And then... 40 to 80. And that's with the business as usual scenario. We can certainly cut that back by um, tackling climate change now still. Right. So, yeah. Um, and then you, you know, bring that together with the fact that you have less precipitation and that heat and less precipitation means you have a lot of days when the soil's really dry too. So now you have, you know, a combination of factors that are going to make it pretty hard on agriculture and forestry across the region. So we're talking about erosion, land loss, we're talking about slips, we're talking about all of these things together. All of those things could be happening and then that's that's all that's either mitigated or compounded by how people manage land in the region, right? It's not all up to GDC and, and the government bodies. It's also up to everyone that's farming and foresting and, and you know conducting a business activity right. here in the, in the coast. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You're Thank welcome. Thank you so much, Sarah, for just getting the ball rolling like this. Oh no, it was. It's always. It's a. It's a sincere pleasure in the heart of a climate scientist to talk to people who are passionate about the subject. Right. I've been doing this for like 20 years, and it's really only the last few years that it feels like everyone's really excited. 
talk about the subject. I can say it's a pleasure yeah. from you know someone that's really passionate about it and talking to scientists that you know, feels like you and acts mm -hmm. like you. Thank oh, you very well, thank much, you. and I hope I'll see you soon again. I hope so too. Hopefully in better circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cheers. Rediata's presentation was by far my favorite one. I'll let you judge why, but it's such an impactful idea and it's such an impactful notion, the one he, he shared, that I couldn't help but just look for him immediately and ask for a short interview. I'm here with Rereata and he is an expert in the way Maori perceive the world and the movement of the stars in the currents of the ocean, in the currents of the air, in the migration of birds and the flowering and the stages of growth of trees and, and animals. Tell me, please, uh, how did this knowledge came to you personally and how did it come to be as a, a whole body of knowledge? Well, it, um, I learned it through a, a, what we call a whare wānanga. Uh, we called it, some people called them blackouts where you weren't allowed to write anything. So it was a continuation of the oral histories that our ancestors had and understood and uh, some of it we can date back uh, 15,000 years uh, because they were students of the environment. They could understand that uh, on some principles that uh, nothing was ever created or emerged in this world to live in isolation. Uh, so that even a hidden face can be detected by its impact on something. So that's the, how they understood the whole environment where you look at uh, Tohu you know, the, the planetary movements, the, the moon, the stars, all that type of thing. They understood that movement and that movement uh, was continuous and they could align their activities to the movements of those celestial bodies. There's also the tohu o te whenua where you can find that the, the birds and the trees actually react to the different times of the movement of those uh, planetary uh, figures. And then there was also tohu o te moana where the fish also react. Uh, in a, what we call a repeating cycle uh, called a maramataka that we could track over centuries. Um, and so this uh, knowledge base, uh, I know our whānau up in Hawaii can track it back 15,000 years and they say it's a lot older but they don't have the evidence to actually prove to Western science that it is older. And so our ancestors were students of the environment because they were part of the environment. And they saw the environment as being part of their family, they were part of that family. So when the, the environment or the climate changed, they would change too. So they understand its beginnings, its middles and its end. Um, and, and so our, our knowledge is based around that understanding of how everything is connected. And that's where all these observations come in. So they were brilliant sailors, they were brilliant navigators. Uh, they could navigate the waka across open oceans without the need for any instruments, uh, just using the natural elements, the movement of the birds, the tidal flows, tidal patterns, wind patterns, and also the movement of the stars and the understanding of the stars rising in different houses, setting in different houses. So they knew that if they're watching a certain segment of the, of the sky, a certain star is going to rise at a certain time, and they know that they were on track. So, yeah, no, brilliant knowledge handed down from uh, generations ago. Two follow-up questions from that. So the first one is, has this knowledge been passed to the next generation? After yourself, as a, as a recipient of all this knowledge, 
who is next in line to, to keep it alive? Oh, there's a number of, uh, I'm not just the only one, there are a number of wanganga around the country. And it's been passed on to the new, uh, in our uh, tamariki, in our kura, uh, and the ongoing wananga that we continue to run uh, every year. Uh, we run what we call a wananga that passes this knowledge on to the different age groups. And the second question would be, um, with climate change accelerating at the rhythm that it is right now, how does that knowledge base change and adapt to the different, like all of the fluctuations and all the changes in all of the patterns that we, like you hold as a, as a reference for your knowledge? Well, we can track the changes using the, uh, the ancient system of the maramataka, the, the lunar cycles. Uh, and we can actually accurately predict the movement of uh, fish in the ocean, uh, the migration of the birds. We can actually, even down to the, uh, the general wind patterns that can be detected uh, just by watching cloud formations and cloud patterns. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that fine. So um, I think the overall thing is that we understand how things are connected and that we don't never, we never, never, ever uh, look at things in isolation. Thank you so much. Peter's presentation literally lit the room on fire. Well, not literally, but almost. Everybody got up and cheered. And the number of kioras we heard were so many coming from the audience and from other presenters. Because what he was advocating for was a complete shift in the way we manage our resources as a region. And he was giving us a lot of good arguments as to why we should form a Maori economy. So I'll leave you to listen to what he has to say. I remember once I was, I was with Carter Holt Harvey talking to, to their senior executives and, and they said, as far as they're concerned, there was no wall of wood in New Zealand. And I said, well, what about the East Coast? And what about Northland? There's major forestry plantations coming on there, all due to come in from about the mid-2000s, 2010, so on and so forth. And they said, they're no good for us because all of our plants are in the, in the central North Island on the volcanic plateau. So the transport costs to get the logs there, as far as we're concerned, the logs don't exist. So I said, well, what would make an industry suitable for you? And what they wanted, well, what they needed to be internationally competitive was effectively brand new plants that were much bigger in scale. And the way they, they saw it doing, they explained their operations in Chile, it was almost like a, a giant version of maize. They'd build a plant and there'd be all this plantation forest and they'd literally flatten it and they would then effectively um, you know, just demolish the plant go down the road about 30 or 40 k's, build a new one, and they'd do the same thing again. And so there'd be a big rotation, they'd, re they'd replant the forest, but they'd just basically flatten them. And that's, that's not really a mode of, of investment we want here. And when we think about one of the conditions we've got with climate change is we've got to decarbonise our growth. If we want to have growth, we've got to decarbonise it because it's based on energy of fossil fuels. Now, just to have these great big plants that burn enormous amounts of fossil fuels, um, it's just not a viable option. It's just not viable. Again, Sorry. if you want to tell us again why the East Coast should look at a different way, a different economy. The East Coast is, is unique in New Zealand because if you look at its population, it has about 50,000 people and approximately half of the population is Māori. And it's 
quite remote geographically. You've got the ranges on one side and you've got the sea on the other and there's a long skinny road to get in from the south. So it's a little bit of an island within an island. So if there was the ability to do a natural experiment and based on tikanga Māori, te ao Māori and mataranga Māori, um, we had a speak of this this morning, um, that very, very... Um, beautifully articulated the knowledge that we have and the point he made is we have what we need to know now to have a thriving community to have a community that lives with the environment that's not against the environment because they're part of the environment and if you start to think about this in terms of whakapapa then we're all just part of the whakapapa of the land and in many cases, we are the taina because everything else was created before us. They are our tuakana, and we need to show them some respect. And this is the sort of insight that tikanga Māori can bring. Um, back in the day, um, we have been here, or Māori have been here, for generations and generations and generations. The last 150, 200 years, that's not the norm. That's the aberration. And the last 200 years hasn't been great. So if we want to have a better future, the immediate past has not been a good example. But if we go back to what we saw um, before colonisation, where we lived with nature and had a thriving social environment, that's a much better way to go. And that's the sort of future we need to have. So what's stopping us? What's the abyss that separates us from here and there? We've still got... We've still got an economy. I mean, one of the challenges Māori have with coming with climate change is if you look at the Māori asset base, it's very heavily based on agricultural industries. And if we look um, in, in the East Coast in particular, we have issues such as erosion. And for, with forestry, it's increasingly, if we look at what the projections are going forward with climate change and temperature, then to have plantation forests like Pinus radiata is going to be increasingly risky and from an economic or an investment perspective increasingly unattractive so the ability to keep on sustaining the sheep we have now on highly erodible land um, trees on highly erodible land um, it's just not a sustainable economy and socially it's not a desirable one either so what we have to do is um, Maori have to back themselves and start to do something better because the 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 forces behind the old economy they will keep on eking it out as long as they possibly can because it means it means their system's dead otherwise but it's dead anyway so that's a, a, a different center to the sphere, like a counterweight to the economy that's driving us to the ground and show what's the better way and start regenerating our economy, culture, society and health. Exactly. When we, when we talk about things like um, rural regeneration, and this is a, a topic that around the world people talk about. How do we, how do we revitalise rural areas? How do we stop the drift into cities? Um, and this is something that in Tairafiri you could sort of say, well, how do we have a better society? And, and that's a different question for having a better economy. How do we have a better society? How do we how do we have um, you know people that are happy? How do we have you know issues such as well-being? And it's to measure it apart from things of just material wealth. Um, we have a lot of um, sickness and a lot of marmai, 
and a lot of those are the ills of um, of the advanced society, of Western society, of the affluent society. So the affluent society, in many cases, has not been a great success for our people. Thank you, Peter. This time we got it. <laughs> Mike Smith corridor was one of the most impactful and exciting ones for me as well. He was reminding us of all of the obstacles we have in our world to mitigate and stop climate change, but also in all of the important tools and advantages that we have as a community. So he highlighted how we had to stay strong within indigenous tradition, work together and support those who are doing the mahi to enact change, and that is no one's responsibility by themselves. So the interconnectivity and the focus on important issues is what's going to get us where we need to go. Empowering communities, being inclusive, getting everybody on board, that's was the message that I got from Mike and I invite you to listen to the corridor we had afterwards. Okay, Mike, this is for the Hour of the Wolf. We're here just asking you a few questions about your presentation. You were talking about integrating knowledges from Te Ao Māori in Pakeha world and you were talking about the necessity to make a change in the systems and institutions that brought us to this circumstance that we're in today. So what will be a way that you see moving forward of these two worlds coming together and forming new institutions that serve uh, not, not both populations but all the populations that are suffering from climate change. Uh, one of the things I hear people talking about in regard to that particular issue is uh, needing a new paradigm. That the paradigm that we live in at the moment is, is part of the problem, well it's actually 90% of the problem. So that we have to find new ways of living. So I suppose for us as Māori, uh, we already have a paradigm. Uh, it's a paradigm that's been suppressed and oppressed, uh, you know, since the time of our grandparents. And so we don't have to necessarily find a new paradigm or invent a new paradigm. We already have one that's already there. But it's a paradigm that's been pushed under the carpet, if you like. Um, and so that cultural paradigm, you know, it's got its own language, it's got its own systems, it's got its own... Uh, relationships has even got its own schools and radio stations and TV stations now, so it's um, it's more than just a dormant or a latent thing. It's uh, it's an existing paradigm, and it's based on the values of um, nature. Nature is the highest authority in our world, and we deify it. We name our gods after nature, and so we worship nature through our uh, through our deities, if you like, and so um, that's the highest form of law. It's higher than human law. It's bigger than the rights arguments. It's not about our rights. It's about our responsibilities at that at that level. So um, I'm not too sure if we necessarily have to integrate our Maori world into uh, into another world. Um, or you know, I'm not too sure how I, how to answer that question or how you'd go about doing that. Because um, we've suffered from attempts to do that to be assimilated into a dominant culture, and it hasn't really worked. So I think we've got to sort of identify the types of cultural models that are currently exist and ask ourselves, are they working? You know, are they providing the sorts of um, uh, obligations that we have to the future children by looking after the, you know, the natural world? Um, and so if those systems aren't working, why would we want to integrate them? You know, of course, there's some aspects that are OK, and, um, but they don't necessarily... That's the thing about... Um, modern consumer capitalism, which is the prevailing culture, it's not a white person's or Pakistan's culture, it's a kind of culture of economics really. And, um, and so it's pervasive around the world, so it doesn't belong to any particular country. Um, uh, and in that sense, um, 
you know, it's made up of a lot of uh, different um, ways and knowledges and systems from all countries on the earth. And I think, you know, we can definitely, as part of the world citizens, we can share in global knowledge. But I think that global knowledge needs to sit within our own cultural frameworks, and we'll 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 adapt. We'll you know, we'll use the stuff that we think is is suitable or within our values, and uh, the stuff that's not, we probably won't use. Do you recognise the existence of indigenous values even within the communities that have driven this change toward capitalism? Like talk about indigenous populations in the British Isles like the Celts and the Picts and other tribes that were there before they were displaced and replaced by other more aggressive and dominant um, cultures. Do you think that the answer for people over in Europe or people in other parts of the world would also be to go back to their indigenous roots that used to be living in balance with nature in their own different environments? Uh, indigeneity in continents like Europe is a complicated thing because you've got one huge continental landmass in which many, many people have walked across those lands and at various parts developed civilizations that have come and gone. So it's, it's hard to sort of put a, put a pin in where did indigeneity start and stop. You know, you could sort of say the original, if you're saying that the indigenous are the original inhabitants, you probably have to go right back to the Neolithic ages and start with the, you know, with the, um, you know, the Cro-Magnon families or the Neanderthal families or, you know, our, our ancient ancestors. And after that, societies and cultures developed that walked across the land, as I said. And so, you know, the cultures uh, shifted. Uh, here in the Pol uh, Pacific, it's not that it's not so complicated. You tended to have one uh, culture that that um, dominated these lands for quite a long time, and then there was another culture introduced relatively in more recent times. So our history, we're a young country. We don't have thousands of years of of um, migrations of people across the face of the land. So these, I think, these issues are more pronounced here, but they're a little bit more difficult in Europe. So your question: Do we go back to uh, those fundamental values, well, I think it's a question for them to ask, but um, rather than me, because I'm not part of that world. Um, but I can just appreciate that it could be quite difficult. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That was great. Thank you, Mike. Mike Joy had a message about the importance of us transforming into what the environment can provide for us and not trying to transform our environment to provide what we want from it. That was also focus on the intelligent use of land and resources and also the caretaking of the same resources but not just in land also the maritime resources such as kaimuana that we should be looking to preserve for the future as they're really valuable for our communities here in the coast he's got a, a lot of really good points and really strong points and he has a very good ability to show them so i'll uh, let you listen to what he has to say my question would be, Mike, talking about ecosystemic detriment by our human actions and how the continuation of those actions will just keep leading us further into that destructive future. Mm -hmm. What are some of the actions that we could take instead of the ones that we've been doing in which we change the shape and direction of rivers, which we change the basic way in which nature operates in a complete, like in an ecosystemic level, talk about um, Gisborne, for example, how we wiped out all the bush that was in the plains, mm. 
retaining the moisture you were talking about that's so important and we replace it by just horticultural exploitation and, and just something that doesn't quite work in this area hmm. so what are some of those actions that will lead us in the right direction in okay so what we what we need to do is definitely no more bare hillsides no more monoculture plantations which are like pine forests where you they've totally failed because you have to clear fell them so we have to forget planting things that that end up being chopped down and on the on the lower slopes and on the flatland we we must um, not we must de-industrialize farming so get into permaculture um, we have to make sure that we don't um, we we get machinery out of it we have multi-level farming where we're, we're farming the ground the mid layers up in the trees bees nuts fruit you know a whole combination of different um, production happening on that land hemp you know all sorts of um, options there's no one answer it's there's microclimates within microclimates within climates where you match and water you match the land use or the what you're doing to that on a on a you know on a de-intensifying anti-industrial way and and then you have multiple gains that come from that you have water quality improvements you sequester carbon you stop sediment going from into waterways, you reduce nutrient loss into waterways, you have increased biodiversity. That's the way to think as multiple um, fixes rather than you know, some kind of you know, sort of technological fix that just leads to more problems that needs more technology to fix afterwards. How would you say that would affect the local and regional economy if we implemented um, some of those measures here? Yeah, I, would, I think that Inevitably, it'll be bad for the economy because our stupid economy is based on GDP. It doesn't factor in costs. And so at the moment, we subsidise bad land use. At the moment, we, we subsidise damage done to the environment by not charging for that. And we let, we let people, uh, we let you know, foresters and farmers pollute the landscape and we, we actually subsidise that banned land use by not charging them for it. So... Uh, under our current economic system there will inevitably be um, a reduction until we balance that book but but you've got to remember the counter argument or the the counter example is if we do nothing then there will be no economy so there's not like there's a there's an option here we either change or we have no future and it's also about how we perceive or how we envision economy because yeah. economy for the mm. classics was the science of regulating a scarcity. Right? Yeah, that's and, right. And it was talking about resources, not about mm. money. Yeah, money's that's the thing. We forget that money is a token for something else. And 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 in this case we've forgotten we, we, we concentrate on this economic value, this dollar value, and we forget the real values in life, the things that are important to us, you know. There's no, there's no price on love on community or any of the things that are truly important to, to us. There's only a dollar value on stupid things that are just, you know, periphery, you know, yeah, and trinkets and ephemeral things that just come and go, you know. So, so yeah, the whole, the whole rebalance is about changing um, the way we perceive um, 
economies um, to take into account real values. How about our lifestyles in a whole? Because, okay, the economy is what gives mm. us money, but if mm. we don't really need money because we mm. have the resources, then... Yeah, that's right. That's the thing. Solves itself. Yeah, yeah. But We've about... got a capitalist economy that's set up around maximizing capital for a few people. And as soon as we realize that and move away from that, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be better off. It's like a... A, a dawning that has to happen on people, you know. There's been people talking about that for 200. Years. I know, I know, I know. It doesn't change, but there's a there's a very there's a very powerful um, system keeping that in place, and that the people that are in decision making roles are mostly capitalists. They're mostly people that profit from capital, and so they don't want to change it. But we would have to change our diets, the way yep. we move around, yep. the way we extract anything from the land or yep, our environment. Yeah, yeah, we'd have to change everything, yeah. So, but, no. but but that changes for the good, you know. I mean, Absolutely. I stopped eating meat 20 years ago. It's only been a good thing, you know. I stopped smoking 40 years ago. That's only been a good thing. I stopped, you know, driving my car to work and go on the train. It's a good thing. You know, everything, every change I've made has been a good thing. And so it, it seems, this is the classic, isn't it? It seems like it's going to be the end of the world, you know, like when you're a smoker and you're not going to smoke anymore or when you eat meat and you don't want to anymore, you think, oh, God, I'll never be able to live without that. And then in no time, you feel the advantages of it and, it, and it's, it's, all, it's all good, you know. I think you know, that's at a little tiny scale, but that's the, we'll wake up one day in this new world where we, where we live if we're still around because we will have changed um, and realise that it was a... It was actually a change for the good, not a change for the bad, getting rid of fossil fuels out of our lives. What was it? What was the key factor in all of these changes that you t you took over in your life? What was that thing that made mm. it possible for you? Um, I think in each case they were different, you know. But but I think in the back of my head I knew they were bad for me, and so um, but it just took something to trigger it, you know. Um, so yeah, I mean, and they're very personal things and different for different people, but it's a, it's a realization thing that, that brings about the change. Shift. Yeah, 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 yeah. It just, sometimes it can be the tiniest thing that gets you started and then, and then once you're going, you're away, yeah. yeah. Mm. Anything else you want to share with the audience? Um, I, think, I think that um, I, I love talking about how people don't realize how important uh, energy is in their lives and, and what frustrates me hugely is economists don't realize how important energy is and, and I think I love to use the example of energy slaves and that each one of us in the developed world has hundreds of energy slaves and, and to sort of explain that is you can buy a barrel of oil for $75 at the moment that barrel oil contains the same amount of work as one human for 11 years of their life so for $75, you've got a slave working for you for 11 years. You don't have to feed them, you don't have to house them. So we're way, we have way more slaves than any slave owner in history had. And that's just each and every average person in the developed country. And so then you think about, you add them all up because they're doing, they're all working for you. So, you know, you pay less than $100 to put petrol in your car that will take you 600 Ks. Try how many people, it takes about 120 people to push your car anywhere near the speed that you want. Try paying them, you know, for 10 hours to take you that distance. It would cost you tens, or it would cost you thousands and thousands, probably tens of thousands of dollars to pay for that. So we have this subsidy in our lives that we pay virtually nothing for 
and it's going to have to go. It's going to go because to save the climate or to save the fact that we're running out of it. And so that's the kind of realisation that that is such a big part of our lives that we need to undo. So do you believe that we have to completely let go of this de facto slavery that we're affecting on fossil fuels? Mm. Is there something else that we can shift No, well we can we can shift towards renewable energy but as long as you realize that that will never be anywhere near the energy density of what we have or availability so they all require fossil fuels for infrastructure um, they all wear out and, and need fossil fuels to fix them so so roads um, you know all of these things that we take for granted you can't build with renewable energy renewable energy is just renewable electricity electricity is 20% of our energy use So even if we could replace all of the electricity, you've still got to find another 80% of the energy that we get from directly from fossil fuels. Including fertilizer. Oh, fertilizer, yep, yep. Just everything, concrete, you know, all the buildings, all the roads, all the infrastructure, you know. It's all massively a result of fossil fuels and and just the entropy that, that stuff wears out, you know, over time. Um, massive, you know, now we've got this the, the huge amount of infrastructure that we have looking at all the roads and, and buildings in the world. Just maintaining them, even if we weren't building new ones, would use a massive amount of energy. You know? So we basically have to work with, with what we have available. We're going to have less energy in our lives, so we're going to have to work a bit harder. <laughs> that's, that's what it's like. But at the moment, we've got a lot of people sitting around doing nothing because and they're really pissed off and they hate their lives because they're not doing they want to do stuff and they can't so you know and, and once again the change will be a good thing not a bad thing dean had a lot to tell us about the effect of deer possum and stout presence among other exotic animals that have had a very detrimental effect on the health and the stability of forest systems such as the rakumura and how these effects with time grow to affect a wider area such as the Waiapu catchment area and the erosion that has been going on in, in that region up the coast. So it's a very good first point to talk about interconnectivity and how everything depends on, on each other. But also it opens our eyes to the urgency of getting rid of the this animal presence and just taking anything that shouldn't be in that system out for good. Dean. Thank you very much for all of the information you've shared with us today and thank you very much for just coming here and being here and sharing your being with us. In the matter of your presentation and how you talked about the introduction of beer and stoats and possums to the Rakumara and other forest systems in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, how does that affect the likelihood of the forest to survive the climate change changes that are coming in the future and what is being done to mitigate those effects today. Okay, this is where you need to get the big picture history. Um, those animals were brought here from many different countries by these little colonial groups called acclimatization societies. They were set up because they saw Aotearoa as being islands that were an empty Eden that they needed to fill up. So that's why these animals were brought here, but they've 
had lots of unintended consequences. They've bred up, they've moved into wild areas and they've eaten their way through the ecosystems. So we are now at the point where the Rokumara forest is collapsing on itself. The deer are eating seedlings and they are plagued. They are eating the bark of trees. They're even eating the leaf litter. So And so that's causing the um, forest floor to be very, very dry and evaporate. Um, possums from Australia that were bought here, they are killing the tops of many types of trees, rata, tōtara, all sorts of uh, ancient forest giants. And as those trees die, they are releasing carbon dioxide. And so the most sophisticated... Um, natural carbon sinks on land, the ancient native forests of Aotearoa have become carbon emitters rather than being the best carbon sinks that they can be. So at the moment, um, kind of like the Arctic. A little, yeah, yeah, the feedback mechanisms is, is, is live and well, but there's a window of opportunity where we can turn it around. It requires a huge amount of work. Um, and I know Te Whanua Apanui and Ngāti Parau have worked up an incredible plan that is going um, to the government soon and we'll see the outcome of that. But it is visionary and it's going to tackle those key issues um, which will also lead to not only carbon um, sequestration but also retaining water and the water cycle to become go back to its natural um, cycles again, hopefully considering that we're looking at a few degrees temperature rise. There's all these complex things into play, but if we don't look after the original forests, then they won't look after us. So we're talking about a great solution for a great issue coming from indigenous minds. Yeah, yeah, this is very much uh, um, driven by, by um, Ngāti Parau and Te Whanau Apanui, uh, all the way, initiated and driven and concluded. I look forward to hearing a lot more about that plan. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much for sharing. And we'll see you again. You're welcome. Hidini really is one person I've encountered many times in who is relating to climate change and climate action. He has a very strong spiritual point of view of how we should be healing ourselves and preparing ourselves spiritually in order to be prepared and equipped to tackle these challenges that we face as a community. He has an, a unique point of view every time speaking from the heart and I just would like to invite you to keep your ears open to what he has to say. If you could share with us a few impressions about today and what light shone in your head or in your heart after listening to today's Korero. Uh, kia ora. My name is Hirini Reedy, Sid Reedy from uh, Rutoria East Coast. Uh, part of in recent years, I've walked the whole East Coast region from basically Oporiki through to the Whareratas about a 350-400 kilometer three times in the last five years. I've noticed the devastation getting a lot worse in terms of the rivers, calibrating the, the forest, sleeping and all those sort of aspects. Um, I'm quite an intuitive man and I did the same thing when I walked through the whole length of New Zealand. A lot of it was tuning in and one of the things that we as part of our awakening for climate change is awakening the spiritual self. Being able to communicate with the songbird that sings. The various creatures of the night as we hear the sound of man-made noise behind us of the truck. How to still remember the songbird 
how to remember the feeling of the forest while you walk on and stand on asphalt bitumen. You have the noise of man-made machine. And in this compression of space, it's sometimes to find your own nature, what resonates with your own heartbeat, what gives you the inner smile. And I feel that's important because climate change, it in some ways, worst case, will, could mean a big loss of humanity. It Also, you've heard the anxiety from the younger generation when they look to the world ahead of them. There's already anxiety amongst the young generation and they're already doing the climate strikes and you heard it today at the event. What I'm feeling from this is that you're getting a, a gathering of people who are feeling a call. They are feeling a call in their own unique way to be part of a movement. It could be like the exodus. We cannot stand in, in the land of Pharaoh anymore. We cannot stay in the artificial world and be regulated and dominated when we are feeling the call that we must make the move to cross the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is the own obstacles that are in front of us as we seek to find paradise or the promised land. Not so much a physical place that we are relocating to. It can be a sanctuary, but also an inward space where we are conceiving conceiving the dream of humanity and climate afterlife. Climate afterlife. Once we've gone through this, we may start the journey, but it may be the next generation who completed for us, for we may fall in this one. But if we do fall, let us fall having known that we have helped to open the pathway. Let us know that we have, in this time when they may remember us, we didn't turn away. We faced the challenge. We became humble in what we need to do and then we built that fortitude and quietly walked up and started the first step. And I feel that's a movement where we're all doing the walk because we're feeling the calling. And so, and perhaps in this way, this is my own speaking to you, is helping to clear, reflect, articulate my own voice to myself. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. That was beautiful. Does that, yeah, does that. So those were the interviews I managed to catch on Wednesday. And that was a bit of a kuriru we had on the day. Uh, the next day, there was another hui. And this was one aim that unpacking a lot of that information that we gathered on Wednesday. And from kind of the audience point of view, looking at what the community would be uh, wanting to do and what would be some of the first priorities. And we also talked about a few actions that we can start taking to further our interests in those topics. So some of the topics that we touched on the most were community activation. So getting everybody involved and moving and food security and health and planting and replanting natives so there's a trend of community and nature first and then economy comes with that but not as a the main driver as it usually is with decisions about investing in the community and then on friday we had a third hui that was aimed to be open at the whole community we had a few uh, recurring people from the day before and wednesday as well and since we had been 
talking together for already three days, it was a very kind of streamlined discussion about the way we wanted to do things moving forward in really specific areas. So again, community activation was the main focus, but the necessity to act now and start doing small steps toward getting the community involved was also a very strong point that was discussed. And to finalize on Friday's week, we had a very widespread call on exploring the spiritual side of facing climate change. And moving forward, that's one of the main things I would like to focus on. But it was really comforting to see that this need or this calling for reconnecting to our spiritual roots is being felt by other members of the community, especially those that are directly involved in trying to get the community together and moving. So expect a lot more on these topics coming forward. There's something that was achieved was making the connection between the people that care about all of these issues. So putting everyone on the same room and gathering in front of the same information was a huge success and a huge step forward in the right direction. Thank you, Tina. Thank you, Nati Puro. Thank you, Tefano Apuni. We really appreciate all of the effort and for every presenter that was in the Climate Summit. Thank you, and we hope to see you again. I'll see you again soon. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the corridors.